Fortnite in Film is a podcast where every week you get the chance to listen in on a group of film lovers chatting about the great, or not so great, movies that we've been watching over the past fortnight. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of A Fortnight in Film. I'm your host Jason. Thanks for tuning in. As mentioned, Christian was unavailable this week, so I've pulled in a special guest. So welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Howdy, howdy. My name's Andrew. Uh, big movie guy, big movie guy. Um, favorite directors, uh, Scorsese, Kubrick, you know. Uh, PTA is like the absolute, uh, my absolute favorite. Uh, I'm actually uh, with another one of my buddies. I'm going to start a podcast just covering PTA stuff. You'll be very upset to hear that I, I gave Magnolia half a star. <laughs> oh no i saw that and i i uh, i uh, i was this close to saying that we should talk about that movie because i would love to pick your brain about that i saw that you gave like a pretty similar rating to uh taxi driver too yeah one star george and christian weren't happy about it <laughs> <laughs> no yeah uh those are both movies that i like love quite dearly and i would have loved to like hear your uh hear your perspective on those things yeah well funnily enough you can go back and listen to uh episode six because george and i actually discussed magnolia and taxi driver oh really okay so it was for the pod okay i can listen to the prior episode and you'll hear all my thoughts i'm sure you won't agree with any of them but (laughs) i totally get it though i think um especially taxi driver that was something it took me a few watches to like really warm up to you know and like obviously i'm not saying that like your opinion will get better on it the more you watch it but like yeah I've, i felt like very similar things the first time i watched it but i think you do get that in some films too like there's some films you watch and you might hate and when you watch them a couple more times and like oh, actually it's not that bad or like a vice versa it might be a film you love and when you watch it again you're like yeah that wasn't as good as i thought it was mm. <laughs> yeah uh that actually uh stopped me from watching the sandlot for quite some time because that was um one of the favorite films of my childhood. And I knew the second I went back to it, I was uh, just not going to think it held up at all. I've been hesitantly going back to it about once or twice a year, maybe, because I really don't want to ruin that stuff for me, you know? I've watched a few films this year that I probably haven't seen since childhood. And some of them still hold up, like Home Alone still holds up. But there's others I'm like, I can't watch this as an adult. It's just, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm too old for it. Yeah, there's plenty of those. I think um, there's, all, uh, I think a, a decent amount of the animated movies. I think both of us grew up in a time where like animation uh, was just putting out banger after banger. So I think like yeah, yeah. we can look back a lot on like our uh, childhood films and like there still is like a lot of good content there. Heads up, the films we're about to discuss may contain spoilers. For a list of the movies we cover this week, check out the description. Well, let's uh, jump into it. So, the film I picked, um, talk about this week, um, is probably, I'd say, one of the best films I've seen over the past two weeks. A rewatch for me, I haven't seen it in many years. And I was somewhat hesitant about watching it again because I think I mentioned all the way back, maybe in episode one, that. one of my big problems with watching movies especially something like action movies i can't suspend my disbelief and it's it's very hard for me to like go into a film and turn my brain off and be like oh yes all this ridiculous stuff is totally plausible but this film which is die hard there were some unrealistic moments in it of course because it's an action film it was just a fun watch like i feel like there's there's movies that are just enjoyable to where you can sort of transcend the logic in them and you're like, okay, yeah, that probably wouldn't happen, but this is so fun, I'll just have a look at it. Actually, that was going to be the first thing uh, I wanted to ask about the movie. Um, I mean, I, I do enjoy the movie. I think I respect it for more what it's done for the genre than I do genuinely enjoy it. But uh, something I was, this is my second time seeing it now, uh, and something I was trying to figure out as it was going on was how much of the, like, kind of su- uh, silliness and, like, over-the-topness was, like, intentional or like if the movie was completely in earnest and like those uh, silly moments are just something that's kind of aged with time. And that's like something I couldn't really figure out as the movie was going along. Like he has these like one liners and he like monologues to himself all the time. And I think that stuff is super like fun and enjoyable. I just couldn't exactly pick if like how uh, like serious it was taking itself sometimes, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't think about that. I'd say it's sort of like in the middle like, I guess it's trying to be a serious action flick, but I think it knows what it's doing at the same time. I mean, like, it can sort of 
poke fun at itself. I mean, no one, you know, in earnest would say, yippee ki yay, motherfucker. You know, like, <laughs> like <Sure>. but, you <laughs> know, it's, yeah. it's having fun. And like, also, you know, our other thing is like the Hans Gruber, who's played by Alan Rickman, that's very much a sort of you know, stereotypical villain, European, like shadowy figure who has all these like quips and one-liners. Yeah. I think the film is having fun with its genre and sort of the the tropes of its genre but but i think i think it is supposed to be taken fairly seriously and i think what what i liked about it was it felt somewhat realistic like the plot wasn't too out there and, and even you know having john mcclain be a cop that didn't feel like contrived like it actually added to it because you're like oh, this is going to be interesting because you've got this, like, detective who's going to use, like, all his, you know, detective smarts up against this, like, supervillain. I think that worked. I didn't I didn't feel, like, when it was revealed he was a cop, I wasn't like, oh, of course he is. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. I want to see what he does. And they do a lot of reveals like that pretty naturally where, like, it makes sense with the story. That one was, like, a pretty, pretty nice one. And then, like, when his name gets revealed to Gruber, I thought that was handled pretty well and i thought that was done in a pretty creative way and i think they have like a lot of those like really nice moments where they like reincorporate things my favorite part of the movie even this time watching it was uh i can't remember the name of the um the limo driver but he he just he just has this whole little side plot where he's just down in the basement the entire time and then he just like helps save the day at the end and i thought the way that they like they would, like, go back to him every once in a while. Yeah, and he's, he, he's just chilling out in the car listening to music, you know. <laughs> yeah, and when they, like, went back to him, it, like, made sense. It was, like, played for a laugh pretty much every time because, like, these insane things were happening and he's just, like, talking to his girlfriend on the phone or something like that. I mean, like, some of it was predictable, but I, I feel like a lot of it, it sort of kept you guessing. And it's I think it sort of used that in the film as well, like you mentioned. Like, there was sort of a cat and mouse game of Gruber didn't even know who John McClane was until like I've when it was the midpoint of a film or like the second third of a film like he just thought he was some random guy that actually led to um my favorite moment in the entire movie is when Hans is like running around going to the ceiling and then he just he just accidentally bumps into John McClane <laughs> and then they're just hanging out for like the next five minutes of the movie until there's uh like obviously the other people come in I just thought that was like a really fun way for the characters to meet each other because with the cat and mouse analogy, the mouse had been caught there, but like the cat didn't know that it was the mouse. So it made like this really cool moment. They play it like totally seriously, which makes it so much funnier because he's putting on like this awful Southern American accent. It's hilarious. I was surprised and I think I said this in the review that I wrote for it. I was surprised by how good Alan Rickman was. Because I'd only really known him as Snape, but right? I'd seen him in a couple of other things. But you see him, I think most people who, you know, were born in the 90s would see Alan Rickman and go, oh, it's Snape. And not to say that, I mean, I'm not a big fan of the Harry Potter movies. Um, I haven't watched them probably since I saw them, you know, when they came out. Um, and not to say that he wasn't good as Snape, because he was, but that's a very different role. But I thought he was really good. I mean, Bruce Willis, of course, was just fantastic. It's truly a shame now to um, seeing literally anything he's made in like the last 10 years just how much of a hack he's become seeing like die hard and like that franchise or like unbreakable or Sixth sense even it's like he he has the potential to be such a great actor but he's just been taking these complete schlock b movies for the past like 15 years it's like a true waste of his talent i think but i, I liked um the other police officer powell oh yeah reginald Fell johnson yes yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was uh, he was really good. Like he was, you know, I was rooting for him because he was like the only guy who was riding with John McClane. Everyone else was like, "This guy's like a lunatic. Like take him out." And it, it, you said the the thing about um, Alan Rickman and Snape, and I thought the same thing about Reginald Vell Johnson because uh, he was in a s sitcom called Family Matters in like the nineties, and it's so much different. And that's all I knew him from because I hadn't seen Die Hard till uh, like literally christmas last year and then i watch it and i see him in it and he's like a very like he he really plays like the family man well and i just think he does like a really good job of um being like this go-to guy for mclean the first time i watched it i thought 
like they went back to that so much and i thought it was like really weird and out of the film but it made a, it like felt a lot more natural this time and also uh their communication led to my favorite like little exchange in the whole thing the first time like uh the police captain like the lapd police captain like takes the phone and he's like talking to mclean and then he just gives it back to reginald and he's like how you doing in there mclean he's like I'm not getting the respect i deserve or something like that and i thought that moment was so funny it's an interesting sort of movie in that, you know, it is very much an action movie and has all these, you know, thrills and, and explosions and shootouts, but there is that element of humor there, and I think it does that well. You know, generally, like, they don't mix. Either you're making an action film or you're making comedy, but, yeah, they, they do they do put, you know, snippets of humor in throughout that do actually work, and it doesn't feel, like, forced or out of place. I mean, like, even in a way, I think you can see... uh I don't know if you've seen it, but um, Hot Fuzz by Edgar Wright. I love Hot Fuzz. I love Hot Fuzz. Yeah. Um, I feel like this movie specifically has, like, a really big influence on it. Just because, like, it, it feels like a really flanderized version of, like, John McClane is that cop, I think. It just, like, takes himself so seriously, only focus on the job. And I think it has, like, that same payout in that movie, too, of just, like, this insane action. I, I, I think, like, it really is so important in the genre of like it defined tropes for the 80s and 90s because of how like important this movie was yeah it's actually a good point about hot fuzz i didn't yeah i wouldn't have thought of that analogy but now you say it it totally makes sense because like nicholas angel is very much about like i'm just here to do the job and then like the end of the film comes around and he's like this badass like you know gun toting <laughs> a little bit more hyperbolized i think than um john mcclain of course yeah. but i think like the influence is there yeah yeah i mean there's not a whole lot else to say in it like i loved it i said i loved it more than i thought i would it gave it four and a half stars i just thought all it was good like you know the plot the setting um you know the music the stunts the effects it's it's a near perfect action movie to me i i i think um my modern uh sensibilities of like action movies have shifted a little bit about like what my perception would be of this movie i'm a big fan of like the really grimy realistic action movies like the raid yes oh that's on my list oh the raid is a wonderful film also about a police officer stuck inside of a building i think i ended up giving die hard like a four out of five i don't really use half stars but yeah, I, I do really like this movie. So and let's move on to your pick. Yeah. Which was just, uh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll yeah. let you introduce it because I don't know how to, how to, uh, how to talk about it. <laughs> so my pick was uh, the 2018 remake of Dario Argento's Suspiria, which I think is a, a Gaio movie. I don't know how to pronounce it. I think it's influenced by that um, Italian genre of horror. This is um, a nightmare movie. I don't really know how to describe it. Um, it's set during the uh, like the era of the fall of the Berlin Wall in Germany. It has witches uh, and dancing, and that's <laughs> really the only way to explain the movie. It was yeah. So I watched it last night. I I, I almost didn't rate it because, and I've never done that ever. Um, but I almost didn't rate it because I was watching it and I'm like, I don't know what to rate it. Like I was just at a loss. I was like I. I don't know what score I can give it because in some senses, like I ended up rating it three and a half stars, which in my rating scale is like good. But in some senses, I'm like, well, it could be a four star film, right? But it, it, in other senses, it could be like a two star film. Like it's, I was very torn um, on what to give it. And then I finally was like, okay, I'll give it three and a half. But it was just, <laughs> it was, and I said this in my review, I actually opened my review with this line. I said, it is probably the most bizarre film I've ever seen. I've, I've not seen anything like it ever. That's that's actually so strange that you said that because um, uh, I had two other things that I was considering recommending, and then I went, I'll go with the tamest of the three. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm curious what the other two were. Um, it was uh the 1977 film House. Oh yeah, that's that's on my list. Yeah, and then uh the 2019 film Climax. If you thought this movie was insane, it's basically that movie, but like more overtly on lsd i don't know if climaxes i know house is on my watch list i've i know i've seen climax come up on letterbox all the time it's essentially um take out the witches and make the entire movie about dancing and then that's what climax is it's wonderful uh <laughs> but i decided we'll go with the tamest of the three options the two and a half hour um 
which nightmare movie? <laughs> so I, I was thinking about it, and like t- at face value, it's an interesting story. Like it's 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 you know it's like you said it's a, it's about this, this woman um, who's played by Dakota Johnson um, who goes to this dance academy in Berlin and and becomes a dancer there. Uh, but obviously it's revealed that the dance academy is just a front for this coven of witches. And then it's, and then it's revealed at the end that the Susie, who's played by Dakota Johnson, is, is not just some random dancer. She is like this mother Suspirium who's like this ancient witch. Like it was, you know, so just, just the plot at that it was interesting. It was an interesting plot. I've not seen a story like that before. I'm sure it's been done. Every story has been done before, but I haven't seen a story like that. Um, so I thought that was that was interesting for me. The only problems with the film, and I'll get into more about what I love later. And maybe you can tell me because I know it's one of your favorite films. But I only usually do this if I don't get a film, so I have to go and look it up. So I, I went and read a whole bunch after it finished about like what does it mean. I sort of get it. Like, I understand what he was going for, the director who is Luca Guadagnino. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but I will. So I sort of get what he was going for. So, like, I've heard all these different interpretations. Like, some people were like, oh, it's a thing about, like, motherhood and, like, women uh, and, like, you know, how the women treat each other. And then other things were saying it was, like, about power and, like, you know, how powerful, like, powerful people, like, abuse their power um, and they have to like pay for it or something or or sort of relate to that like what happens when powerful people don't have guilt and shame which is obviously what uh, Susie says it at the end she says like we need guilt and shame but not your guilt and shame to the old man and then I read other things saying it's like a thing about like collective guilt of the Germans and like the Nazis in the World War Two. there were a whole bunch of different interpretations and I, and I can sort of see some of them I'm like oh yeah I can sort of see that it wasn't particularly clear but I can now I've read it I can like understand that sort of angle maybe you can you know enlighten me like what 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 do you think the message was? Or like, what did you get out of it? Because I, once I read all that stuff, I sort of understood it. But I'm like, if I hadn't read that, I never would have gotten what it was about. Because to me, the meaning and all these like ideas and stuff were buried so deep. And maybe I'm just dumb. I don't, maybe he knows. But, but like, it was buried so deep that I'm like, I, I, I don't get it. Well, Suspiria is one of those movies for me where um, I, I think I've seen it about five times now, four or five times. It's one of the movies, uh, there's a few movies like it. Um, I think The Lighthouse falls into a similar category for me. Another one of my absolute favorites. Where it's like so open-ended about what it could possibly be about that it makes it something that I want to go back and rewatch and find more about. I think The Lighthouse is a little bit more straightforward about what it's about because there's not so much going on. On this time around, um, I, 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 you said the thing about Germany and I think uh, like the guilt of World War II, I definitely think that's something that they were considering as they were writing it. Solely for the fact where you don't put something in the fall of Berlin Wall era if that's not like a main focus. I don't exactly know how that connects to um, the actual story at hand, but I do think, uh, I mean, like, there's literally no male characters in the entire movie. Like, no no men playing men in the entire movie, I should say, because... Yes, because obviously the, the male the, a guy, the Dr. Klemper, is obviously played by Tilda Swinton, um, who is a, a female. Who also plays um, Miss... Uh, I can't remember... Uh, Mother Marcos, yes. Mother Marcos, that's what it is. And and Madame Blanc, of course. So she's, yeah, she's doing a triple header. Which was the craziest thing to possibly find out after I finished that for the first time, that that was Tilda Swinton. Yeah, I mean, I'll give her credit. She's a she's a very strange uh, individual. But um, she, you know, I, I'll give her credit that she, I didn't know that the Dr. Klemperer was her until after the film. And then it was like, oh, it's Tilda Swinton. I was like, oh, because she looked just like this old man. And shout out to the prosthetics, first of all, for that, but also for the Mother Marcos thing, who is this ugly, disfigured, like, creature. I can't even describe it. It's like this horrible-looking thing. And that's her as well. And then it's like, you know, the makeup in that film and profess- pro- prosthetics are, like, out of his world. <laughs> Something I noticed about Mar- uh, Mother Marcos this time when I was watching it is she had, like, an extended arm growing out of her existing arm. 
which I thought was funny. Um, and yeah, the prosthetics are incredible. Uh, there's the scene at the end, the doctor is literally naked and you still can't tell that it's a woman playing it because of how like clear and like well done the prosthetics are. Though I'm not exactly sure what the film is saying about these things, I think that power and, like, women are, like, obviously women are the focus, but I mean, like, um, women's interactions with one another, I think, are probably the biggest focus in this movie. For me, it's, like, I get lost so much in the filmmaking and um, the visual storytelling of this that I kind of forget about, like, even what it's trying to do because I just get so entranced by this movie because um, I think the same way that um, like Inside Lewin Davis is basically a folk song in a movie form. I think this is like that abstract dance that they're doing. I think this is, this movie is literally a dance. I think that's the way it's structured. I think that's the way it's like effectively told. It's like all like, it's almost like the words they say don't mean anything. Because, like, they have those um, sequences when they're at the dinner and they're, like, talking, but what they're saying has nothing to do with what's actually coming out of their mouth. It's it, it's all about, like, the subtext and what these people are doing and what they're saying. It's so, like, interesting to see these characters interact with each other in this world. Yeah, it is. That it, it, is it is just abstract dance in a film. Um, and it's not even... It's, I guess it's more than that, too. It's not just for dance. It's really a ritual within a film because i guess that's the whole point is when you get to the climax I, I guess they're trying to they're trying to um give a new body to mother marcos so she can survive but obviously that's um doesn't quite happen <laughs> what i what i think is uh really good about uh what, what i think is really uh effectively communicated is a better way to say that is um the way that they show what the dances actually mean to these witches because um, the first scene where um, Dakota Johnson, uh, Susie's character, is um, dancing as the protagonist, she's just completely alone, and um, she's, like, trying to dance, and it's just not working just right at the beginning. So then, um, uh, I forget uh, her name, Tilda Swinton's uh, main character. Madame Blanc. Madame Blanc, yeah. She goes, and she, like, grabs her wrists, and then she grabs her ankles and her feet, and there's, like, this little light there, and you don't really know what that means. But then the next scene happens where this... I think they hired an actual contortionist starts getting brutally murdered as Dakota Johnson is moving and you understand exactly what's happening. And I think that's just such a, uh, such a props to Luca Guadagnino for having such a clear understanding of what's happening in his story to tell it without, and he like trusts his audience throughout the entire movie to get it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And no one did. And that's why there's not going to be a sequel. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I think there are definitely some abstract things in there. Like I would have loved, because I'm a big fan of like backstories. Like I want, especially when it's an interesting story, like this said, it's interesting stories. I'm like, I want the backstory. I got what was happening in the sense of like in that scene, for instance, obviously when Susie moves, so does, um, Olga, um, and obviously, like you said, contortions into this horrible. I had to turn away so many times during that scene because it was just like uh, too much. That scene is a nightmare to watch. By the way, <laughs> I've seen this every every single time I watch it. All of those scenes just get me every single time, just a certain way. But but like I got it right, and then I, I guess one of the things I would have liked is more sort of background on like the witches and like how they came to be and like what their sort of purpose is because like we're given a tiny tidbit of information i think by the doctor who mentions um about you know the three mothers etc but that's really it we're not really told much more and i guess we don't need to be in a sense but for me i don't know i just love backstory and i found that it's so fascinating so i'm like i want to know more about the witches and like that works for me specifically because um i like the implication that we're jumping in on a story that's been like a thousand years in the making. I think that's like a fascinating thing. Um, Like The Shining does that really well too, where it's just like, you're just jumping in and it's like, these aren't the first people to uh, people that this has happened to and they're not going to be the last. And to mention the sequel again, that was where he was going to put all the backstory. He was planning on doing Suspiria part two, uh, but obviously this movie didn't make any money because no one wanted to fucking see it. So... He never got that opportunity, but uh, a lot of the... He said the next movie was going to focus on... It was going to jump through, like, three different timelines as it was, like, 
telling the backstory of the witches and like continuing to develop the next story. Uh, I, I think that would have been a problem that would have been addressed in the next movie with like the ambiguity of all that, but obviously that did not get the opportunity for it. I mean, speaking of that ambiguity, like when I got to the end of the film, I actually appreciated that more. Because like when it starts, for instance, all we know is there's this this woman, this dancer called Susie, who goes along to this dance academy and starts dancing. And obviously in the in the first sort of well, not the first few scenes, because the first few scenes are taken up by um, Patricia. But, you know, after that, obviously, when we get on to Susie, you know, it, even the 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 sort of, well, the matrons, we have a lot of matrons at, at the Academy, obviously, but the matrons say, like, oh, you know, you, you were very persistent in, in you know, trying to get an interview, um, you know, trying to get an audition. And I remember thinking at that very moment, I thought, oh, well, I would have loved, like, more backstory. Like, well, why was she, like, trying to get an audition? Like, oh, well, I want to learn about, like, Susie and her backstory. But then you get to the end, and and you realise that that's a great little... And there's another great moment of that where we're given very brief flashbacks to Susie's childhood. And there's a scene where, I guess, they're doing something with maps, and she's drawing all these things drawing all these lines that say, like, Berlin, going to Berlin, right? And when you see that, you just figure, oh, that's because she just, I guess she just wanted to be a dancer at a young age. But then you realise, once you get to the end, it's like, no, she wanted to go to Berlin from when she was a child. No, she wanted to to get into this academy so bad because she is Mother Suspirium and she is this witch who is destined to, like, come back. And you realise, like, it all connects. And, and you're actually sort of glad for that ambiguity. You're like... Because it's just subtly hinted at, it said it's just that, or it's like her, Susie's mother, saying, like, she is sin incarnate. You know, like, we don't need a big... I'm, I'm usually a big fan of having things, like, <laughs> explained, but I'm actually... In this case, I'm actually, like... It's actually good we are just given little snippets because it all connects in the end when she's revealed as this you know, ancient witch. I think that aspect is really cool to it. And, and um, I think a lesser director or a... a honestly just any lesser film trying to tackle something as dramatic as that third act twist really could not handle that with any like i i i think this movie tiptoes the line between like making a decision that is so ridiculous and insane that you just can't believe it or making it so obvious that you roll your eyes when it finally gets revealed and it it, it does something that's like so insane and unexpected but I think you get so entranced inside of the world of this movie that, like, it totally makes sense. And you don't, like, it's like, oh, that's why she was so connected with Madame Blanc. It's because, like, she was already aware of all of these things, like, subconsciously. Because I, I think it's very clear, too, that Susie is not a stagnant character. She changes an insane amount through the course of the movie. Because I don't think she enters Berlin knowing that she is Mother Suspirium. No, she's just she she's just drawn there. You know, said so it's something she's been drawn to since birth. And then there's that moment again when you watch it in the moment, you don't pick up on it, but it obviously connects later when she's having all those those nightmares which have sort of implanted in her head by the, the witches, and she she wakes up and she screams, "I know who I am," and and at that point you just think, "Oh, well, she's just saying like I'm me" sort of thing. But w- once you get to the end, you're like that sort of the awakening she's sort of saying i know who i am i know i'm i'm more than just Susie. i'm this you know other person so the ending the um <laughs> crazy crazy ending there's obviously a lot of points in the film that are unsettling you know like the scene with olga right is hard to watch um the scene when sarah discovers you know patricia and, and olga and all these these mutilated I don't even know what they are. They're not corpses because they're still alive, but, but you know, whatever they are. And even in the extension in that scene where she's running away and she breaks her yes. leg open. Oh, Jesus yes. like, Christ. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> it was tough. But the ending, I feel like the ending just tops all of it. And, like, the film I'd compare it to... I haven't seen this film in a lot. I, I, I do own it, but I haven't seen it in a long time. The film I'd compare it to in terms of just being disturbing is like a clockwork orange because like it took me three tries to get through a clockwork orange i had to turn it off twice midway through i couldn't watch it um and then i finally watched it it's sort of i mean i didn't turn suspiria off um but especially because i i paid for it um but (laughs) but but, um but it was so you know disturbing and then that end scene comes 
and you know there's that the lighting is obviously very you know crimson and, and it's like you know blood lighting and, and then you know um uh mother marcos obviously near decapitates madame blanc and then the big reveal is like Susie is like, I am Mother Suspirium, you are a fate. And, and you know, death comes, literally, this representation of death fucking comes out of a basement and just blows everyone's heads up. <laughs> it's like the most insane thing. But it, it, it like, it's sort of like I said before, it's entrancing. Like, y- y- I couldn't take my eyes off the screen. I'm like, this is so insane. But I'm like glued to the screen. I need to find out what happens. That whole sequence is like 20 minutes long, too. Like, I, I checked it right before it started, and I was like, all right, we're 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 at, like, 30 minutes now. And it takes you to nearly the end of the movie. Yeah. It's absolutely absurd. Something that is, like, very subtle throughout a lot of it, but a little bit uh, more obvious in the last scene, um, is it's, like, direct influences from other films. Because, like, it does, like, the really slow, like, shutter speed. Um, it does, like, those really, like, deep camera zooms instead of, like... Um, having like a pan in or something like that. I think the pacing of this film is absolutely excellent. I think the payoff for like the slower moments in the movie just really come up in that scene. And I just, I think it's wonderful. Yeah. I was a bit, I don't know. I was a bit down on the pacing only because it was, you know, it was like two and a half hours. So it was a bit of a long watch, but, but I, I do, I do agree. There were some moments I probably would have cut out, but I do agree that even the slower moments, they lead somewhere and they connect at the end, right? Once you get to the end, you realize like, oh, that was in there because we need to be told this, or that was in there because, yeah, like, like even, even a scene with um where Sarah finds she goes into that like secret room or whatever and she finds the hook and she gives it to Doctor Klemper. I was thinking after I was like, oh, that probably could have been cut, but then I was like, no, that's actually important because he he needs to come back to them and bring the hook and. It's literally a death sentence for him after they do that. Oh, like, I, I, I will say, I knew that when his wife, which obviously wasn't his wife, it was like a, you know... Hallucination. Yeah, um, or something really, I guess, put there by the witches. Um, yeah. I knew as soon as that, as soon as they started walking, I was like, yeah, I know exactly where she's taking you. Like, <laughs> you're coming back there, you're done, like... But it's, it's interesting, the ending... Obviously, when Susie, or I guess she's Mother Suspirium at that stage, goes to Dr. Klemper and sort of tells him about his wife and wipes his memory of all the events. I don't know. Maybe, I mean, I love dark endings. So I feel like they could have, like, not done that and just, like, left him to be insane. I guess the point was maybe that Madame, I got the sense that Madame Blanc wanted... Obviously, she wanted to, you know, take over the coven, but she wanted to do things fairly, I guess, as fairly as witches can who murder people. Um, Whereas I feel like Mother Marcos was more, like, chaotic, you know, and, like, wanted... So I feel like in line with... Because obviously what Mother Suspirium, as Susie does, is she comes along and kills Marcos and kills all her followers... I guess for sort of worshiping like this false god sort of thing, right? Because they believe that Mother Marcos is Mother Suspirium, and Susie comes along, she's like, "No, bitch, I'm Mother Suspiria. Off with your head." Um, <laughs> so I, I guess the point is, she's being more like Madame Blanc and taking it more in a positive direction. Hence, she sort of took pity on on Doctor Clemper and was like, "Hey, here's what actually happened to your wife. Your memory's wiped." I don't know. I I feel like I would have loved it if they just like leaned into like total chaos and just you know gone even crazier than they did. <laughs> I I think with with Doctor with Doctor Clemper, uh, I I think the reason they would have done that um as they were dragging him in, they were doing the whole thing where it was like you could they were like yelling at him. They were like, "You could have gotten your wife out." Um these women are telling you their truth and you're not believing them. Yeah, it says, yeah, you, you know, women, women tell you their truth and you call them delusional. Yeah. Um, I think that she was... I, I'm assuming that uh, that her, her um, giving that and, like, wiping his memory of everything that happened, I think that that was, like, a direct response to, like, that kind of thing where it's, like, you couldn't have known. You weren't trying to be a bad person. I think it was, like, like she was pretty much wiping the sin off of those people. And I think he was, she was trying to be like, this is not your fault. I think she was like, 
like Madame Blanc, I think she was trying to like, she was trying to spare his soul. Like she was trying, like uh, Madame Blanc was trying to spare Susie's soul. I think there's like that level of like humanity that just like, you know, makes uh makes Mother Suspirium uh a little bit more understandable to us as the audience, you know. And yeah, I think yes, yeah, like I mentioned before, obviously she says that line to him in that you know we need guilt and shame but not your guilt and shame um and i think i think it does tie back to that whole commentary about power in that you know one of the things i read was that like they were basically saying to uh dr klemper that like you had the power to help your wife get out and you didn't but it, it wasn't as evil as like you know, like knowing your wife couldn't get out and then like, you know, like handing over the authority sort of thing, right? It was more like complacence than maliciousness. It was more um, evil by inaction than evil by action, which I think is, um, it's maybe trying to argue is a lesser evil, though I don't think it's trying to argue that what he did was correct, you know? I think there, there's a lot of interesting, like moral things that come from his his character, um, it's so strange too, because when you're watching it, every scene he is in is so completely disassociated from like everything else that's happening with like, like he he's like basically in like, like just like this quiet drama movie, but then you get to the rest of it and there's like this dancing and this uh, just like underlying theme of dread that's just holding through the entire time. But even in like his scenes, there's like there's like this underlying sadness, but you don't feel that dread when he's on screen like you normally do. It's not until um, like he comes to that performance that you really can feel like, oh shoot, there's like a fatality, not like a fatality, but there's like an inevitability to like what's going to happen to this character. Uh, yeah, but it definitely, the film definitely did well in having this like constant like underlying... I think I said it felt like, you know, like disquietude in my view. Like it was, it's just this, it's never, because it's, what was interesting, and I remember thinking this at the time, and then I sort of got to the end, and I was like, oh, that wasn't that bad, because I know I haven't seen the original. It's actually one of George, one of our, one of my co-hosts. It's actually one of his favourite films, and he doesn't like the remake at all. Really? He's not, I mean, he loves the original, but he doesn't like the remake. That's super bizarre, because I think, um, especially most modern audiences think like the exact opposite. That's super interesting. But I, I know, because I, I was reading, obviously, about... I was trying to make sense of what this film meant, and it, it went into sort of what the 1977 film did. <laughs> it just totally shits on the original, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> I, was, like, I know what the original is. I haven't seen it, but, like, I know what it is, and this is the exact opposite. It's so strange. Exactly. Like, obviously, the ending is the complete opposite. But also, the beginning, in the sense of... We find out in the first few minutes when Patricia is going... You know, runs to Dr. Klemper's... Is, house and it's talking about all these witches and stuff and we find out in the first few minutes she's like yeah i've come from this place and all these people are witches right and you think you're like oh well what's the point of me watching the film now i know these are witches but it still hooks you because literally hooks you but yeah literally yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like 10 meat hooks um, but like you're still interested because you're like okay i know they're witches but what are they gonna do and it's sort of like you said before like we're not told right it's ambiguous like okay we know that they need someone for something it was going to be some sort of ritual and but you, you know you're not, you're not given any more than that um i said we, we're not even really told who they are i said the most we're told is is you know uh, dr Klemper speaking briefly to sarah about the three mothers and that's it so it keeps you watching the whole way through because even though it sort of gives up its reveal in you know in the first few minutes there's still so much more it's not just about all oh, these people are witches it's like there's a there's a power struggle, there's a there's the twist, like there's so much more than just oh these group of people are dancers, oh they're actually witches, like it's way more than that. It's like inside of this like absurd system, there's this like struggling government trying to take control over this like somehow inevitable problem that you're never completely exposed to. I think that's what really hooks you is like this like even this like 10 person little government they have is just completely ineffective in like figuring out what they want to do there's no like 
they have like the same ideas, but like they have no idea how they're gonna get there or exactly what they have to do to even get there. They're really just like training all of these people and hoping that one of them is like ready and wants to do it. It's just like all over the place, and they just get they eventually just get lucky, but it's it's so all over the place, and I think that's so fascinating. And I I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the fucking incredible score by Tr- Tom York. Oh. Yeah, that was amazing. Like, Tom York is so underrated. Like, can we please just give Tom York his due? Like, he's so damn good. No one ever talks about him enough, I feel like. No one ever talks about Radiohead enough. Like, yeah, he's him. Yeah, he's incredible. I, I have no idea how, like, I, I don't know how much you've listened to, like, John Carpenter talk about movies, but, like, when he, he's talking about, like, his horror movies, he talks about how music is, like, the wallpaper. It's not supposed to... um the wallpaper of like a scene it's not supposed to um like infer anything specific it's just supposed to be there and like build the world of the movie and i think this uh, i think tom york's score on this is absolutely incredible like he's he's just his own beast I, i i don't know how else to describe it like all of the sounds in this movie are just so like unique and they fit the vibe of the movie so well like even the music, uh, the music like even fits the visual style. Like the colors are completely drained, and I feel like the the music in this is so like stripped back and like so bare bones. It's it's just absolutely remarkable. Yeah, I'm very glad you called that out because that was that was definitely one of the highlights for me. It was just yeah, but like I said, the visuals are incredible. The music is incredible, and the way they sort of marry together just makes a very like unique film. I, I don't remember, uh, I saw a review of it, and I don't remember who it was, so I can't attribute it correctly, but um, one of the reviews I saw was, like, there's 10,000 mirrors in this movie, and you don't see the camera once. Yeah, that's a good point. And right before I watched it, I read that, and I was like, okay, yeah, there's there's probably, like, some triggeries. Yeah, challenge accepted. I'm gonna see if I can spot at least one camera. <laughs> <laughs> there's literally a scene where it's panning from one mirror to another mirror to another mirror, and you don't see that, which, like... Obviously, directors have done that. We'll continue to do that. But just like the just like the care it takes to make a shot like that, it's just so incredible. And I cannot believe they did something like that. From a visual perspective, I have basically zero notes on it. It is just absolute perfection, I think. So we'll move on to our final topic, which is inspired by Suspiria. Let's chat about some of the best films that have like a majority female cast this was a bit of a tough one for me because i was going through the films i've watched and i'm like i haven't really seen that many like obviously you know females in a lot of films as males in a lot of films but even even films where well you know the, the main character maybe you know and or supporting character is female there's still usually men in the film in fairness there are men in suspiria there are like the two policemen for instance they make a brief appearance sure there's like a couple just extras in the office and stuff like that. They just like pop up sometimes. Yeah, so like there are, but generally, like I said, it is women. And even the male character of Dr. Clemper is obviously played by a woman. So I was trying to look, look through my films and pick out some that I've seen that are majority female characters. I've got a handful, but I might hand over to you first. So I'm keen to hear what ones you picked out. Yeah, um, when you said it initially, um, my brain went to uh, the current Hollywood trend of remaking um, like older movies with an all-female cast. Uh, I think I know where you're going. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the two my brain initially went to... Uh, well, the first thing I thought of was Kill Bill and Kill Bill Volume 2, which I don't think actually have a female majority cast, but I... Um, but, uh, yeah, female main character, obviously. Yeah. But the two I thought of, uh, just right off the top of my head, were the 2016 Ghostbusters remake. Yes, I have seen that. (laughs) Yeah, and Ocean's 8. I think both of those movies are really interesting, because I don't think the concept in itself is flawed, but I think both of those movies fail to understand what is so captivating about their original releases. The Ocean's 8 movie... um, I'll talk about that because I think that's the better of the two. It only just like kind of understands why people liked the original Oceans movie. Like it, it's it's about the dynamic between the characters, but there's also like different layers. Like there's this big revenge plot. There's, uh, it, I mean, it really is just kind of about this cool heist. And I think they 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 miss they try and substitute this cool heist with 
like really weird interesting characters and i think they really miss exactly what it's going for which i think is so much worse in the 2016 ghostbusters i saw it once and was really mad the entire time because it doesn't at all understand what makes the original so uh important it like the original ghostbusters it's about um like bill murray is the straight man i said that backwards he's the funny guy everyone else is like the straight man like they're all like playing off of him and like ernie hudson in that movie he's just like a regular dude and they have that same character in the 2016 with leslie jones who i think is really the only saving grace of the movie the problem is like everyone's trying to be funny the whole time and they're just building off of improv which is not the original is so successful because it is such a such an insanely tight script all of the actors are perfect in their role and they take everything completely seriously like they treat ghost busting like it's the most important thing that has ever happened and that's what makes that movie so charming and so good um like the writing i genuinely think that's one of the funniest movies of all time and i think that um the new one just doesn't get at all like what makes that so funny i think one i think it's one of those examples and i have a I have a very big problem with Hollywood, especially in recent years, because I feel like so much of what they pump out is either remakes or reboots of, of prior films or franchises, um, unnecessary, which are unnecessary, right? Prequels or sequels to already existing films, which again, most of the time are unnecessary, or it's just like superhero movies, Marvel, right? Which is a whole nother kettle of fish and a whole nother discussion. But so much of, of movies like over the past 10 20 years are just like remakes and sequels and all this stuff and it's like but we didn't need a remake you know like the original is fine as it is like especially when you have a classic movie like ghostbusters i mean you know we could sit here and discuss you know bad remakes all day i'm sure if george was on the call he'd say the suspiria remake was a bad one um i would i would i would have a bout for that one i would defend that movie till i die <laughs> but like yeah it's 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 one of those films like they didn't need to remake Ghostbusters, and I haven't seen any of the Ocean's films, either the originals or the remakes, but I would wager that they probably didn't need to remake that either. But of course they do it because it's a, it's a money grab for them, but it's just, it's yeah, it's just so disappointing. I will say the one uh, recent example, I, I guess it's not um, predominantly female casted, but it is in the main cast. Uh, the new Mad Max movie has in the main, like, five people, I think, besides, like, the big baddie. Um, all of them except for Tom Hardy are women I think most of them are pregnant women too which is just funny to think about being the insane action movie that it is and what I really like about um, that specifically is like there's a bunch of women in this movie but it doesn't matter and they don't care that there's a bunch of women in the movie like that's not like yeah that's not the point yeah yeah I have been you know recently just like listening to a lot of uh rob rob mcclehenny talk about like it's always sunny in its creation and in the first season they had uh they had the character of d um and the actress almost quit because she was like you're not giving me anything interesting to write with and it was like yeah well we don't know how to write for women and she said well don't write me like i'm a woman just write me like i'm a character and i think that's something that mad max does abundantly well where it doesn't treat any of them like they're uh, just women in the movie. It treats them like they're characters. And it, like, gives... Like, it's the same with, like, Kill Bill, too. It's, like, there's something to say about her being a woman, but it's not, like, look at this badass woman in this movie. It doesn't feel performative in having a woman as the lead in the movie. And I think that is where... That's what I really like when it's, like, oh, there's women in this movie, but it's not, that's not what matters, you know? So some of the movies I'd call out, said I had a bit of a hard time picking, uh, but I've, I've got a few. So I've got sort of two old ones um, and then a few fairly recent ones. So one uh, we actually talked about um, last week with George, um, and I loved it, um, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, uh, which obviously stars Betty Davis and Jane Crawford. I mean, obviously there are other characters in the film. Uh, there is obviously Edwin Flagg, who is a male, but um, the majority of the film is, you know, Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. One earlier than that, I believe it's a 50s film, How to Marry a Millionaire, starring Marilyn Monroe, uh, Betty Grable, and Lauren Bacall. Um, a few others I'd call out. Probably my favorite guilty pleasure 
movie ever, which is The Devil Wears Prada. Oh yeah, that's a really enjoyable movie. I feel like I am I am the male version of uh, Miranda Priestly. Um, <laughs> but uh, that's obviously a great you know female. Again, there's there's males in it. Obviously, Stanley Tucci's in it. Um, and another classic I'd call out, which I haven't seen in a long while, but I feel like it has to be mentioned just for the effect it had on popular culture, is Mean Girls. Yeah, that's still funny. Like I haven't watched it in a number of years, but I remember when I did watch it recently or somewhat recently i was like yeah that's still funny like it still you know it still holds up yeah i really do like that um and i i suppose another one in that same genre of uh like the young coming of age story is uh book smart oh yeah i've i know of it but i haven't seen it yeah that and ladybird are both like um pretty strong like female coming of age stories which i think um as much as i love movies like super bad it's very clear that women representation in like coming of age movies has not been handled uh with like a lot of grace considering there haven't really been uh women voices in filmmaking uh enough to like tell those stories you know well actually there's another or my final pick was another female coming of age story which is whip it oh yeah uh, 2009 that is yeah really good film i really like that film yeah and that's obviously it features a lot of women because it's about a a female Roller derby, yeah. Roller derby team. So <laughs> one that I just thought of as we were just sitting here, um, kind of in the same vein as Mad Max is uh the twenty eighteen, I think it's twenty eighteen, Alex Garland film Annihilation. I don't know if you've seen that. No, I've I've not heard of it. It's a sci fi film, and uh, I think it's a Natalie Portman, uh, Oscar Isaac's in it. I'm pretty sure. I think Oscar Isaac's the only prevalent main male character. Maybe Dom Hall Gleason's in it. I'm not sure. He's kind of in everything that he makes, but um, it's not like a thing. It's just like, oh, look at all these women just going into this uh, blip doing science things. A, a movie like that would be forgotten that it's like an all-female cast because it's so like secondary to the story being told, which like I think uh, I also don't want to say like, it should always be secondary because I do think it's important to have that to be a priority for some stories. But I think when you have those stories where it's just like, Oh, it's just a bunch of women. Then I think that's really cool. Cause it really like help normalizes those kinds of things. Like if you have like a gay character in your movie and it's not like a huge thing that they're gay, I think it's like a super strong thing because it just like kind of destigmatizes it for people watching it. It makes it like, Oh, it's just people, you know? That brings us to the end of episode seven. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. And thanks to Andrew for coming along and being our special guest this week. Hell yeah, <laughs> great time. It was a great time. I'll have to bring you back again in the future. Hell yeah. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love it if you could give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Um, George will be back next week for episode eight. Um, and then a week after, uh, George Christian and I... We'll be all back on an episode together to kick off November. So we'll see you next week. Bye.